It's worth uh, turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, which is page 1012. 1012 of the Church Bibles, Mark 9. And as you do that, let me ask you, uh, it might not be a question that you've thought about uh, much before, but how much do you think your life is worth? If you had to put a a figure on it in uh, pounds, what figure would you put on it Uh, as a rough estimate? don't need to be necessarily specific. Would, would it be worth a thousand pounds? Do you think, as you, as you think about your, your life's experiences, your skills, maybe your assets, how much would your life, everything that makes up who you are, how much would it be worth? Maybe, maybe you're uh, thinking through that, you're thinking a thousand pounds, that's, that's an, a well under what I'm worth, maybe ten thousand? Well, how about a hundred and ninety-two thousand pounds? Does that sound like a reasonable figure? for your whole life. Well, that's the amount that was paid for a man's life just today uh, on eBay. A man, uh, I read an article today, a man in Western Australia, in Perth, sold his entire life for £192,000. The, uh, the title of the article was Life, falls, uh, life Sale Falls Short of Target. He was hoping for so much more for his life's value. And uh, here's what the article said. A Western Australian resident, aged 44, has just sold his entire life on eBay, including his house, his car, his jobs and his friends, in an effort to make a fresh start in life. At one point, uh, offers on life lot, as he called it, rocketed up to over a million pounds. However, uh, eBay and uh, Mr Usher himself were forced to realise that most of these bids were hoax bids and no one would pay near that amount for this man's life. Up, up to the point, uh, just before the auction uh, finished, he was selling the following things. His three-bedroom home in Western Australia's capital, Perth, and everything inside it, uh, including his Mazda car, his motorcycle, his jet ski and his parachuting gear. He was also selling an introduction to all of his friends and a trial run at his job as a sales assistant at a rug shop. After the auction, uh, Mr Usher said, I'm relatively pleased but I really did think the bid would go much higher, if I'm honest. Well, how about if you were to do the same thing? What is your life worth? All of it. Everything that makes up who you are. Well, let me put it another way. What would you be willing to give your life for? What cause is worth your life? Every bit of it. What hills are you prepared to die on? I suspect, uh, as we think about that, the hills that we are actually prepared to die on, when push comes to shove, when it comes to giving up everything about who we are, there's not many of them and perhaps there shouldn't be. But to be honest, uh, even when it comes to Jesus, I suspect the truth is not many people would be prepared to die on that hill, to die for him. As the quote says, Jesus has always had more fans than followers. And when we start to think, as we did last week in Mark chapter 8, of what following Jesus will involve, it's really not a surprise that he has far more fans than followers. Hear the words that we read together in Mark chapter 8 last week. If anyone would come after me, says Jesus, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, what makes Mark 8 so radical is that I don't think there is anyone in 2008 asking for that level of commitment from you. No one is is demanding that level of devotion 
from your life. No one is suggesting that the stakes are that high or should be, at least not as high as Jesus makes them. You see, in Mark 8, Jesus is asking no small thing of us. He's not asking for fans. He's asking for followers. He's asking for your life. And he's not even doing it with cap in hand, sort of apologetically. No, he's demanding it of you, the whole thing. Now, given the extent of what Jesus is calling us to here, given the extent of his demands on our lives, only a fool would not count the cost. Only a fool would not carefully weigh up such a venture. You'd want to know uh, who it is that would make such an audacious claim on your life. You would want to know the cost, the details of it and you'd want to know whether he can be trusted. And for me, that's what makes these verses that that we're looking at tonight in Mark chapter 9 so remarkable because here in, in these first eight verses and that's what we'll be focusing on, God makes his case for your life, for all of it. And he's going to give us three huge reasons why you should give your whole life to him and then he's going to demand something in return just to add icing to the cake. So let's have a look at it together. Mark chapter 9, we'll see God's three reasons why he demands and deserves your life. The first one you see in verses 1 to 3, as uh, as we pick up the passage here, it's, it's late one afternoon, Jesus is with his disciples, or at least with three of them, And uh, he takes them, Peter, James and John, up the slope of Mount Hermon. It was a spectacular mountain, no no small mound, no small hill. In fact, some 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. And so when you reach the top, the view, the vista was spectacular. There could hardly be a more dramatic location for what is about to take place. Jesus is going to use this dramatic backdrop, this amazing climb that these four men have taken to give us amazing encouragement as his disciples, to show us why, why it is actually worth giving our whole life to him. Some six days earlier, Jesus had uh, jolted his disciples with, with big news. Having heard them acknowledge that he is the Christ, the Son of Man, the living God, having heard that, he now tells them that he would be rejected, that he would suffer much, that he would be killed and only after all of that would he rise again. Peter hearing this and, and all sorts of ideas in his mind, what, what the Son of Man would be like, what this glorious King would be like, rejected it out of hand. To which the Lord had responded that to embrace him, to follow him, would be to follow him all the way to the cross. It's a big call. And so knowing what a big call he's asking of us as his disciples, he gives us this amazing encouragement in these verses. On top of the world, he gives us everything we need to be sure it's worth following him. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain. And when they were all alone, there he was transfigured before them. Luke's Gospel uh, gives us another account of this same event and it gives us a bit more information here that they'd gone up the mountain to pray, at least that's what they thought was going to happen. And so they'd started the night praying as had been the case on numerous other occasions. But whether it was a long climb or just the cool of the evening or whatever it was, they, they sort of ran out of puff or at least Peter, James and John did and they dozed off as Jesus prayed on. 
all of a sudden we're told in Luke's Gospel that they were awoken. And not just awoken, sometimes when you wake up in the morning it takes you, or it takes me anyway, a fair while to sort of you know, rub the eyes and sort of adjust to being back in the land of the living. Not this time. We're told in Luke's Gospel they were instantly awake. Such was the sight before them. Do you see it there? Verse 3. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And I love the way that's described it. The, the, the disciples are trying to describe what it was like to see it and all they can come up with was, is something that doesn't exist. Think about the most amazing bleach product you could think of, how white it can make a white thing. And that's not even close. It was spectacular what they saw. I was thinking about that this week and I, I remembered that there's a beach in, in the Witch Sundays in the far north Queensland called Whitehaven Beach. Has anyone ever been to Whitehaven Beach? Let me encourage you, if you ever go to Australia, it's, it's worth the trek up the top. It, it is a beach with, with sand so white that you can't even look at it. On a sunny day, the, the, the glare, the reflection off the sand is so spectacular uh, that you've got to wear some pretty impressive sunglasses if you're even going to go anywhere near the sand on the shore. Well, that's the sort of picture here. There's these three snoozy disciples suddenly awoken with this blazing, brilliant sight in front of them. And in this sight, we have the first reason why it is worth following Jesus. His nature. He is glorious. Here, uh, some 11,000 feet above the valley, with, with no doubt a myriad of stars above them, the Lord Jesus stands on top of the mountain, blazingly bright. Luke said it was like seeing a bolt of lightning. Matthew says it was like seeing his face shine like the sun. Amazing sight. God says that as you weigh up whether it's worth following Jesus, you need to realise who he actually is. He's a glorious, glorious king. There's a great book that has helped many people over the years to understand what Jesus is like, what he taught, what he came to do. It's called More Than a Carpenter. And it helps us see that Jesus isn't just any old guy like you and me, but to be honest, it doesn't even get to the half of it. Of course he's more than a carpenter, he's the king, the glorious son of man. And here on top of this mountain, just for a moment, his humanity lifts up and the glory that was always his shines through. The glory that will be his forever comes rushing to the surface and it is breathtaking. Jesus shows Peter, James and John this because he knows that it is this vision this vision of who Jesus really is that they will need as they follow him. Every time that they're called to deny themselves, every time that they're called to take up their cross, it is this they need to see. And I suspect Mark puts this story here because it is true of us as well as disciples. If we are going to follow him as he demands, then we need to see who he is clearly. And so what we need to understand here in this first reason from this passage is that the first thing you as a follower need to know is that Jesus is glorious. In fact, it's the very lifeblood of authentic and lasting discipleship. If you're going to make it as a Christian for the rest of your life, this is the vision you need to have in front of you. So let me ask you, as you, as you think about your life as a Christian, as you think about your discipleship, your following of Jesus... Is the glory of God seen in who Jesus is, is that 
right at the centre. Is that what drives you? As you get up on Monday morning for another week as a disciple of Christ in all the contexts that this week will find you in, is that what drives you? This blazing vision of who Jesus really is? Because it needs to be. In John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, us included, he says this in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. I want them to see my glory. Amazing, isn't it? All the things that Jesus could have prayed for us as his disciples, that's what he prays. I want them to see who I am. Now, I suspect it's all too easy for us to lose sight of how vital a vision this is for us. Because it's only when we see his immense value that we would dare to follow him as he demands that we would dare to deny ourselves, dare to take up our cross. It's only when we see that Jesus is not one of the valuable things in our life, but he is our greatest treasure. So much so that if all the other valuable things in our life were taken away, stripped away in an instant, he would be enough. And more than enough, we would still be full to the brim. Mark 9 says, only if you see this vision will you feel that way. And think about your own Christian life. What, what makes you joyful as a Christian? What makes it worth it for you? Is it because you're forgiven? I mean, that's great, isn't it, to know you're forgiven. Well, how about eternal life? How good will that be? I hope there are many things for you that makes being a Christian worth it. That as you get up each day, you think about all the reasons you're a Christian and you think, yeah, it's worth it whether it's the joy of being together like we are tonight or or even the the comfort of knowing you have a framework to think about life, to make decisions. Having a sense of purpose, one that lasts, one that doesn't peter out. All good things. But the Bible pushes us further than even all of this and says, what's at the heart of all of that? It's Jesus. Jesus himself is what makes being a Christian worthwhile. And let me say, if this vision is not front and centre on your horizon as you head out on another week tomorrow, then your discipleship, your following of Jesus is going to be anemic at best. Without such a vision, we will always shirk the tough decision. We'll be more likely to bow to temptation. Without this vision of Jesus, our decision-making skills, our, our use of our time will be myopic at best. When it comes to reading our Bible, we'll be passionless. It's just a chore, it's a task. I know I've got to do it, but there's no joy in it. The same comes with serving him or serving his people. These things will tire us rather than feed us as Christians. Now, it's easy to look at this vision and think, well, that's all well and good. If I was with Peter, James and John, maybe I would be driven like them. If I'd been on that mountaintop, seen what they saw... Things would be different. As I seek to follow Jesus, as I have to deny myself, as I have to take up my cross, where's my vision? Where's my mountaintop experience? We'll turn for a second to our other reading in 2 Peter, chapter 1, it's page 1222, and see what Peter says about this event. 2 Peter, chapter 1, and I'll start at verse 16. 
looking back on this mountaintop experience that we're reading about in Mark 9, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now, up to this point you're thinking, great, good for you Peter, lucky you, but I wasn't there, I didn't see it. But look what he says next, have a look at verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you see what Peter is saying? Mountaintop experience is great, but you've got something even better. You've got something far more certain. You have the word of the prophets, the word of scripture. You have something that if you read it, you will see the very blazing heart of this glorious vision that we are seeing in Mark 9. You will see Jesus. I reckon that these words are amazing. Peter is telling us that in the word of the gospel, the word that we read week in, week out here at church and no doubt you read during the week, that you are seeing God's glory. As 2 Corinthians 4 puts it, in the word we read we hear none other than the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel by which God causes his light to shine in our hearts. You want to see something brighter than any bleach in the world? Open the Bible. Behold Jesus. Amazing words. Now the only way I think we could possibly lose sight of Jesus' glory, the only way we could lose sight of that being what drives us as a Christian is if we decide that we no longer need to hear the gospel. You know, I've been a Christian 5, 10, 15 years. I've moved on from that. I've matured. Peter says to us in 2 Peter 1, that's a fool's plan. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus and not move. There was a song by a, a band a few years ago, a band by the name of Pearl Jam, uh, who wrote a song about a man who had it all and then lost it. Uh, it's called Nothing Man. It's got this great line in it. It says, caught a bolt of lightning, cursed the day he let it go. And I reckon it's easy to be that way as a Christian. Here is our bolt of lightning, Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of his glory, of who he is. It's all too easy to let it go. But just like the man in that song, we are nothing without it. And so let me encourage you, we need to be a church that helps each other not lose sight of it, not to let go of this bolt of lightning. And so don't underestimate what we are doing when we meet on a Sunday or in small groups or even just meet up informally when we open the scriptures together. We are once again fixing our eyes on him and that is no small thing. Reason number one from God, if you want to give him your life, is his son is glorious. The second reason we see in verses uh, 4 to 6, having seen who Jesus is, we now see why he came. We now see his purpose, which we also need to see if we're going to throw our lot in with him totally. We'll pick it up at verse 4. There appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. 
It's an amazing moment, isn't it? First of all, you've got the glory of God shining brightly in your eyes and then all of a sudden you've got these two greats of the Old Testament standing beside him. I'd love to have been there. Amazing moment. Here we have two men that earlier in the scriptures it's recorded both stood on mountaintops and saw the glory of God just like the disciples were doing. Two men who who have famous departures from the earth, famous ways of leaving the earth. Moses, we're told uh, in the scriptures, died on Mount Nebo and God himself buried him. Amazing. Elijah, we're told, didn't die. He was taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven. And both men, and I think this is the key, I think this is why they're here. Both men are key pieces in God's great story, God's great plan for his world. You've got Moses, the, the great lawgiver, and you've got Elijah, the prophet. And so here you have the whole law and the prophets represented next to Jesus on the mountain. You've got the very crossroads of all God's plan. All of a sudden on top of this mountain we see there's no plan A, plan B and now plan C with God. It's all one great plan. The law and the prophets talking with Jesus, talking about Jesus. The one who said of himself, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. Can you imagine being there? I mean this is one pretty heavy duty small group. I'm not sure if you've been in a small group where you have those sort of big aha moments where everything seems to be falling into place where I think this would be one of those, these three guys chatting together, speaking about the harder things. And do you see what they're talking about? In Luke 9 we're told this, they spoke about his departure which was, he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Of all the things they could be speaking about, they spoke about his death. They spoke about what was about to happen. All the law and the prophets, everything was pointing to this moment. That's what they were interested in. The one that Jesus had just told his disciples about, the one he said he must die. Despite Peter's protest, despite his feeling that, no, of course the Son of Man can't die. Here we see there's no mistake. He must die. He must depart. The whole law and the prophets demanded it and now they speak of it with him of the cross, of the death of the Christ, of this mighty atonement for sin. It is the very purpose of Jesus' life. The disciples, having now seen God's glory, they are shown the very heart of that glory. You see what it is? It's his death. Here on this mount of transfiguration, this mount of God's blazing glory, we see... Right at the heart of it, there is another mountain that they need to keep in mind, a mountain that is yet to come, just a few days away, because they're the same mountain, the same glorious Christ. You've got Mount Hermon, and then in a few days you'll have Mount Golgotha, the place of the skull. Here Jesus is displayed in dazzling power and dignity. There he'll be displayed in weakness and shame. Here his clothes, were told, shine brighter than any clothes have ever shone. There they will be blood-soaked, they will be torn apart and they will be gambled over. Here he is flanked by the two greats of Israel. There he will be flanked by two common criminals. Here blazing light fills everything. There darkness will cover the earth. 
Here Peter says, how good it is to be here. There he will deny even knowing him. Here the voice of God declares, this is my son. There a pagan soldier will do it. They're one and the same. Mark says, if you want to see why it's worth following Jesus, then behold that these two mountains speak of the very same thing, the glory of Christ, the glory of the one you follow, glorious in power and in weakness, the glorious king and servant. The moment God's glory shone brightest on this earth was the moment his son died the moment all the demands of the law were fulfilled, the moment all the promises of the prophets were answered in a single day by a single man. That's why we follow him, says God. Now before we move on, it's worth noting Peter's response to the scene at this point. Have a look at at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, uh, seeing this scene with Elijah and, and Moses with him, he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. It's the understatement of all eternity, I think. He says, let's put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and we'll put up one for Elijah as well. It's classic Peter. This incredible discussion is going on and somehow Peter gets it in his head that these two, three greats need a pearl of wisdom from Peter just to keep the discussion bubbling along. And so he says, this is great, isn't it? How about we make some tents? We could stay here all night. If there was ever a time for listening rather than speaking, this was it. But that's Peter, isn't it? He's always got something to say when nothing is required. And you've got to ask yourself, what was he thinking? I mean, apart from just being Peter and prone to sort of blurt things out, I suspect it shows us that even with this vision of Jesus' glory, as clear as you can get, even again hearing of Jesus' need for departure, Peter is still stuck where he was back in Mark 8 where he says, no, you don't die. Surely you don't die. Let's just stay here where you're on top, where you're king of the hill. Let's hold on to this glorious moment. There's no need for you to suffer. If this is where it's all heading, you in your glory and we with you, then let's cut to the chase. You see, what Peter fails to see is God's glory is revealed in Christ's suffering. You can't have one without the other. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed and only after that rise again. And what he also fails to see is the one who would follow him will likewise deny themselves and take up their cross. Now before we snigger at Peter, we need to see that our reaction can all too often be the same. While we might not dispute Christ's need to suffer on the cross, we may well struggle with the connection between his suffering and ours. It's far too easy for us to think that that suffering for a Christian happens if you're unlucky, if things don't go your way for a while or, or, or maybe just from time to time. But the scriptures are crystal clear on this. Again and again they speak of this being the way of those who follow Christ. It was quoted for us last week from Paul. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but to suffer for him. Do you believe that? Or are you with Peter on the hill? Or as Romans 8 says, indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You don't have one without the other. We are to share in Christ's glory. That is the great promise 
And so it should not surprise us that the way there is the exact same way our Saviour trod. We've seen who he is. We've seen why he came in. We get one final reason from God why it is worth following him. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. We have an amazing vindication of all of this. As I said at the start, if you're going to really throw your whole life in with God, the whole thing, if you're going to do what he's asked of you, which is deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, you need to be sure that he's telling the truth about these things, about who he is and why he came. And you get the ultimate vindication of that here in verse 7. Reasons why we trust him. Have a look. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my son whom I love. Now throughout the Old Testament, this cloud represented the very presence of God, his, his approval The mountain's starting to get crowded. You've got Jesus, you've got Elijah, you've got Moses and now God the Father has stepped down onto the mountain. For Moses and Elijah earlier, this cloud had appeared in their mission life, vindicating what they were doing. God was saying, yes, this is my mission and now he's doing the same with his son. And what a vindication it is. You want to know why you should follow this man? Hear what God who created this world says of him. This is my son. I love him. Why follow him? Can you think of any better place to be than with the one who is called son by God? Than with the one whom the father loves and we're told in Mark 1 is well pleased with. All the way through the scriptures, this cloud, as I said, represents God's presence, his acceptance, his pleasure. It did when it led the people through the wilderness. It it did when it went past Moses and it blew past Elijah. And now we're told Peter, James and John are inside this cloud. Why follow Jesus? Because being with him is being in the place where God's presence and acceptance and pleasure can be found. So wherever he goes, even to the cross, wherever he goes is the one safe place to be. I reckon Mark 9, 1 to 8 gives us these three massive reasons why we should trust Jesus, why we should throw our lot in with him, our whole life. But I I suspect for for all of us, myself included, it's very easy to lose sight of these reasons, lose sight of this vision of who Jesus is, of why he came, why he can be trusted. How are we going to make sure that we don't fall into that trap? That as we head out on another week and all the busyness of the week takes over, how are we going to not lose sight of who he is? Answer. Do you see it there in verse 7? Three words. Listen to him. If you want to see just how glorious Jesus is, if you want to see what following him will mean, if you want to see why it's worth it, listen to him. God has been speaking to us since creation and his word is never empty. He always speaks with power and with purpose and always for our good. And we're told by the scriptures in these last days he has spoken by his son. And so God says, listen to him. Listen when he says the son of man must suffer, that he must be killed. Listen to him when he says if anyone would come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow. Listen to him in all that life will involve for us 
in times of great happiness, in times of deep sorrow, listen. Listen amidst trouble as well as peace, in times of plenty and shortage, listen to him. And don't be surprised as you listen that his word, his voice asks much of you, that it demands much of you, that it changes much in you, perhaps more than you think you're prepared to give. He wants your life, all of it. How much would you give for your life? How much is it worth? What hills are you prepared to die on? In the end, all humans choose to live and die on a hill. We all make our choice. Mark 9 says, make sure the hill that you live and die on is one that you have followed Jesus to. Let's pray.